Welcome to Prima's 2023 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Senior Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Lisa Stam will discuss five ways to mitigate health plan risk. Lisa is the Vice President of Consulting Services at Cheryl Morgan. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Lisa. My pleasure. When trying to mitigate risk to your health plan, are there some strategies you can use that are specifically targeted towards your stop loss coverage? Yes. In fact, there are several things you can do with respect to stop loss coverage to mitigate the risk to your health plan. Stop loss is one of the more esoteric parts of health plan administration and Not everybody is aware of all the bells and whistles that you can purchase that help to insulate your plan from risk. So I thought I'd just highlight a couple of those. And the first one is what we call a new, new laser guarantee. So a laser is a really scary sounding word, but it is simply a higher specific deductible for one person on a health plan. And a specific deductible on a stop-loss policy is very similar to the deductible that you have on your auto insurance policy or on your homeowners. So it's the amount that the insured pays prior to the insurance company paying. So for health plans and stop-loss, we refer to that as a specific deductible. So most groups will have the same specific deductible for every employee with the exception of a couple of lasers, and the laser is just simply where the stop-loss carrier wants the health plan to have some more liability for a particular individual prior to their stop-loss coverage kicking in. So if a stop-loss carrier can identify individuals who represent more risk at the beginning of a policy, they will try to single them out for a higher specific deductible because stop-loss carriers are in the business of not losing money. So anytime they can you know, minimize their exposure, they're they're going to try to do that. So what we try to do in many cases is to have a guarantee on a stop-loss policy that other than the lasers that the employer agreed to at the inception of the policy, at the next renewal, there cannot be any additional lasers. So if during the course of a, a plan year, an individual emerges with the potential to have a million dollars in claims. If you have a no new laser guarantee on your stop-loss policy, the stop-loss carrier cannot single that individual out for a higher specific deductible at the next renewal. Now, you pay a little something extra for that protection, but that can be invaluable protection, especially for a smaller self-funded plan where a million-dollar laser could really wreck your budget. And in conjunction with that no new laser guarantee, we always recommend that there's a rate cap associated with it. So it's it's nice to have the no new laser guarantee, but if the carrier can, instead of assigning more liability to a potential high claimant, build all of that liability into your premium, then you really haven't accomplished very much. So you really need to have both the no new laser guarantee and a rate cap. And so I'll give you an example of how this has benefited a client that that we advise. So it was a city in Kentucky, and they had a dependent on their plan who was a $2 million claimant in back-to-back years. And 
after that first year when they had $2 million in claims, the stop-loss carrier would have put a million-dollar laser on that claimant. And we know that because other carriers put a million-dollar laser on their proposals for that group stop-loss for that next renewal. And the incumbent carrier was prohibited from doing that because they had that new new laser guarantee in their stop-loss policy. And they could not increase their premium by more than 50%. So in that particular case, 50% of the stop-loss premium was $150,000. So instead of having a million-dollar laser, which would have come to fruition because that dependent was a $2 million claimant in back-to-back policy years, the city only had to pay $150,000 more. So that was um, that's the no new laser guarantee with the rate cap. And another enhancement to your stop-loss policy that you can purchase in order to mitigate your risk is what we call specific advance. So without specific advance, if you have a million-dollar claimant, and let's say your specific deductible is $100,000, then you would have to pay out the entire million-dollar claim and then get reimbursed after the fact by the stop-loss carrier for the $900,000 in claims that were over your $100,000 specific deductible. With specific advance, the stop-loss carrier will advance you the reimbursement, so they'll give you that $900,000, cut you a check, and you're able to hold the claims and not pay the provider until you have that money in hand from the stop-loss carrier in order to pay the million-dollar claim. So with, you know, big plans with huge budgets, it's, it's not as big of a factor. But for a smaller employer who maybe doesn't have a ton of cash reserves on hand, a specific advance feature on their stop-loss policy can be a very important feature to have. And along the same lines, there's another feature called monthly accommodation. And this is another cash flow protection. This is on aggregate coverage. So there are two types of stop loss coverage that group health plans typically have. One is the specific coverage, and that's the guarantee that the health plan won't pay out more than that specific deductible and liability on each individual on the plan. And then there's aggregate coverage which is coverage for all the claims that the employer or the health plan is paying underneath that specific deductible. And so if you if you don't have aggregate coverage, which some large plans don't, then your liability is your specific deductible multiplied by everybody on your plan. So when you have aggregate coverage, you buy that liability down to a manageable level. And it's usually such that your maximum liability under your aggregate policy is what the stop-loss carrier expects your claims to be during a given stop-loss period and plus a 25% quarter on top of that. So with monthly accommodation, what happens is if your claims in any given month during the stop-loss policy year exceed one-twelfth of what your maximum liability is under your aggregate policy, then the stop-loss carrier will give you money to help with any cash flow issues that that might represent to you. So, again, for large health plans with a lot of reserves on hand, this, this probably isn't a critical feature. But for a smaller health plan with not a lot of cash reserves, this could be a, a very important feature to help with any 
any years in which you have some really big hits in any particular month. And then the last feature that you can add to your stop-loss policy is what we call a terminal liability. And this is protection for a group health plan if they're self-funded and then they decide to leave self-funding and become fully insured. So what terminal liability does is it gives you stop-loss coverage on all your run-out claims. So all the claims that you're going to be continuing to pay after your stop-loss policy ends because there are going to be claims that are incurred at the very end of the time that you're self-funded that aren't going to be processed and paid until after that that stop-loss policy concludes. So if you want to have stop-loss coverage on your claims that uh, you're paying after the stop-loss policy period ends, then terminal liability can help with that. And with all of these features, there's a premium load for that. So it's not typically a ton of money, but, you know, you will pay something for for some of these, uh, for all of these bells and whistles. So those are some of the things that group health plans can do with respect to their stop-loss coverage to help insulate their plan from catastrophic level claims or really big claim shares. In addition to making sure you have the right coverage in place, are there any pitfalls to avoid that could cause issues with your stop-loss coverage? There are, and some of these can be very significant risks to a plan. So the first one is your plan having coverage that your stop-loss policy excludes. So some stop-loss carriers, some of the better ones, in fact, mirror the language in the plan document. So they guarantee that they'll cover anything that the health plan covers, but not all of them. Some stop-loss policies have exclusions. And so if your plan is covering something that your stop-loss policy excludes, then you may not have stop-loss coverage for those claims. So it's always a good idea to check the exclusions in your stop-loss policy to make sure that they match what's in your health plan. And if there are gaps, then you really should try to close them if at all possible. An area where this comes up a lot is with procedures that are experimental or investigative. So a lot of stop-loss policies will have exclusions for claims that fall into this category. And not all health plans have the same exclusions or perhaps their exclusions are written a little bit differently. So it's especially if you're changing stop-loss carriers and you have a new policy, it's a really good idea to look at those exclusions and to amend your plan wherever you can to match what's in your stop-loss policy. And then in addition to that, if your plan has an unlimited lifetime or annual maximum, which plans are required to have now under the Affordable Care Act, then you want to make sure that your stop-loss policy also has an unlimited annual and lifetime maximum. Million-dollar claims are becoming very common. Even $2 million claims are becoming more commonplace since the federal government prohibited plans from having a lifetime or an annual maximum on benefits. But there are still stop-loss policies out there that won't pay out more than a million dollars in claims or $2 million in claims for a particular member. So you want to make sure that if your plan has an unlimited lifetime and annual maximum, your stop-loss policy will cover all of that. And then another thing that can present issues for health plans is that if you have a big change in your employee population, so let's say you've had to lay some people off or you close a division or you add a division, 
then there are typically provisions in your stop-loss policy that give the stop-loss carrier the right to change the terms of your policy if there's a significant change in that enrollment level. Usually, it's it's 10% of the enrollment that you have going into the stop-loss policy period. If your employee population changes by more than that in either direction, then the stop-loss carrier may re-rate you or change your premiums or change your maximum claims amount. And another thing that can disrupt your policy is making a a third-party administrator change or a network change. Usually, stop-loss policies will have written into them a provision that says the stop-loss carrier can change your rates or your what we call factors. That's how they determine your maximum liability under aggregate coverage if you make a TPA change or a network change. So if you're contemplating a change like that during the course of a policy year, you need to make sure that you get your stop-loss carrier to approve that and to approve if they're going to make a change that you know what that change is and that you can live with it. And then another thing that can disrupt your policy is not meeting participation requirements. So this can happen sometimes when an employer has a, a very generous waiver policy. So if they're paying a cash waiver, to employees to not take the health plan. Sometimes stop-loss carriers will have requirements that there's a certain amount of participation within your eligible employee population. And if there's not, then that, uh, that may give them the ability to change the terms of your policy. And then I wanted to mention, too, that there's bells and whistles I talked about earlier, things that are what we consider to be a rider on your stop-loss policy. Some of them have limitations within them, and this really varies from carrier to carrier, that you just need to be aware of when you're purchasing those additional protections. So, for example, with the no new laser guarantee, some carriers have the ability to raise existing lasers in subsequent policy years. Others will not raise the existing lasers. They're limited to the amount of laser liability that you went into the policy with. And one thing that we've seen happen, which is um, not a good thing at all, is that there will be a no new laser rate cap protection, but the carrier doesn't have to offer you a renewal at all in the subsequent policy year. So that essentially makes that protection worthless. So you want to make sure that they do not have the ability to not offer a renewal at all. We want to make sure that they are guaranteed to offer you that no new laser rate cap at renewal. And then another thing that can really burn a self-funded plan is a disclosure issue. So disclosure is a process that a health plan goes through when they're, usually it's when you're signing on with a new stop-loss carrier. Sometimes even if you're, renewing with the same stop-loss carrier, they will require you to go through the disclosure process. So this is where the stop-loss carrier asks the employer to disclose any potential risks that the employer is aware of that were not disclosed through the reporting that the third-party administrator provides as part of the stop-loss quoting process. So this would usually be something along the lines of, uh, you know, an employee yesterday had a heart attack while they were at work. And so that claim hasn't been submitted and processed and, and paid by the, by the third-party administrator, but the employer is aware of it. 
So if the employer is aware of that, they need to disclose it. So our rule of thumb is with disclosure issues, although, you know, you may have a really attractive stop-loss proposal on the table and you're aware of something like that or a new diagnosis that hasn't shown up in the reporting yet that you feel like is probably going to negatively affect that proposal, it's best to disclose it because the last thing you want to have is a claim down the road that the stop-loss carrier will not reimburse because you didn't disclose that risk at the inception of the policy. So our rule of thumb is, if in doubt, disclose it. And then another thing to be aware of is MGUs, Managing General Underwriters. So these are kind of middlemen, if you will, for stop-loss coverage. So these are companies that will go out and get stop-loss quotes for you. And typically, they bear part of the risk for the claims. And you're never quite sure how much of the risk they bear. And managing general underwriters can bring very competitive stop-offs to the table. And we work with them all the time. It's just that it adds another layer of complexity to the equation, another party through which, you know, things can go awry. So it's it's always a good idea if you're working with an MGU to have your third-party administrator or your consultant or both vet that MGU very carefully to make sure that they have a good track record for paying claims. And then another important consideration with respect to stop-loss policies is that you want to make sure that your personnel practices align with your plan document language. So, for example, you don't want to let employees stay on your health plan if there's not a provision within your health plan for them to be covered. So this can come up when an employee has run out of sick time or vacation time and they are not on FMLA and there's no other provision within the plan that allows for them to be covered other than COBRA. And the employer is just, you know, trying to be generous and keep the employee covered on the health plan while they're not actively at work. But the stop-loss carriers, before they reimburse a claim, will ask for payroll records. They will want to know, you know, how is this employee still covered if they weren't actively at work? So you want to make sure that you're following the provisions within your plan with respect to your personnel practices. Another time when this can come up is if an enrollee is trying to enroll late. So just this morning, I spoke with a client who said an employee had a new baby and did not enroll the baby within the 30-day window in which they were supposed to do that. So they wanted to know, can we let them enroll late? So in this particular instance, they were allowed to enroll late, but by the terms of the plan. But you want to make sure that you're following all the provisions of your plan. And if you need to depart from the provisions of your plan, you want to get your stop-loss carrier to approve that. So sometimes they'll allow an exception. Typically, they'll want to know, is this particular individual likely to be a high claimant? If they're not, you know, sometimes they'll let you allow somebody to enroll either early or late, whichever the case may be. And if you are in the habit of allowing employees to stay on your health plan in particular situations, then it's best to write language into your plan that allows for that. So if you allow employees sometimes to be on unpaid leave that is not FMLA leave, 
or if you allow them to stay on the health plan when they're on short-term disability, or if you ever have severance agreements with employees after they're terminating their employment where you allow them to stay on the health plan for a time, write those into your plan document and get the stop-loss carrier to approve them so that there are no issues down the road if one of those employees who is on the plan ends up being a high claimant. So those are some of the pitfalls that employers can find themselves in with respect to stop-loss coverage. So moving beyond stop-loss concerns, can you minimize risk to your plan through tightening up or better enforcing your plan's eligibility provisions? Absolutely. So with respect to tightening up eligibility, what this typically involves is implementing a spousal carve-out or spousal eligibility policy that attempts to have spouses who have coverage elsewhere through their own employer or even maybe a former employer to elect that coverage so that that other employer plan is paying the claims for that spouse and your plan is not. Many employers have adopted a policy like this. The idea is, you know, let that person's employer take care of that individual and your plan takes care of your employees and their and their children because the Affordable Care Act requires that. Many times, for whatever reason, high claimants come from the spousal population. So if you can not be the primary payer for those spouses, then that's uh, very much, you know, to the benefit of your health plan. There are various ways to implement a policy like that. And moving from the most draconian down to the least, you can simply make them ineligible by writing that policy into your health plan. If they are eligible for coverage to their own employer, they're not eligible for your plan. Another thing you can do that's a little less draconian is to allow them to stay on your plan as long as they enroll in their employer's plan. Because then what happens is the other employer's plan becomes the primary payer and you're only paying secondary claims, which are very small dollar claims typically compared to paying as primary. Another thing that you can do is to allow them to stay on the plan if the other employer's plan doesn't meet certain parameters. So, for example, if it costs more than X number of dollars a month or if it has a deductible that's higher than a certain level, then you can allow them to stay on your plan. And then the least draconian measure you can take, in my opinion, is to have a spousal surcharge. So you charge more for a spouse who could be covered on another plan than you do for other spouses. So the, the downside to that is that if they stay on the plan, you still have the full risk. The idea is that, you know, the surcharge would be high enough that most spouses would elect not to be on your plan. And then as far as enforcing the eligibility policies within your plan, you really do want to make sure that you're not covering anyone on your plan who's not eligible you don't want to be paying claims that another payer should be paying, and you don't want to have stop-loss issues. And it used to be such that if you found out somebody was on your plan and they shouldn't be, you could retroactively terminate them to the date they should have been terminated and recoup the claims that were incurred during that period of time. But the Affordable Care Act has rescission rules that limit your ability to do that. So usually the best you can do is to terminate their coverage going forward. So you've already paid out all those claims and you're, you don't have any way of recouping them. So the most thorough way to enforce your eligibility 
policies is to have an eligibility audit performed. There are companies who do that. The advantage of hiring a company to do an eligibility audit is that it's not you, the HR department or the risk manager or the employer who is asking employees to provide documentation for their dependents, like like marriage licenses, divorce decrees, things like that. It's a a third party. Their employees, if they're going to get aggravated, they're going to get aggravated with that eligibility company and not with you. Um, The disadvantage is that it is a very costly process oftentimes. So a less expensive way of enforcing your existing eligibility policies is to do a full enrollment every year, at least every few years. So a lot of employers will just have people fill out paperwork at open enrollment time if they're making changes, but then you're not really checking to make sure that everybody has, you know, removed spouses they're no longer married to. I mean, you would be surprised how many times a spouse who is, uh, well, an ex-spouse remains on a health plan when they shouldn't. So having them do a full enrollment every so often is a good idea. Specialty drugs are an ongoing concern for many plans. Is there anything a plan sponsor could do to mitigate that risk? Yes. In fact, this is a, a huge area of concern for health plans. The FDA recently approved a drug for hemophilia that costs $3.5 million per treatment, making it the most expensive drug in the world. And if a drug like that hits your plan, well, you've got stop loss that protects you in the short run. But if you know if you don't have a no-new laser guarantee, or even if you do, and a and a really expensive specialty drug hits your plan, you know the stop loss carrier may not offer that no-new laser guarantee for the next renewal. And the thing about specialty drugs is that typically when somebody's taking one. They stay on it for a long time. It's not like treatment for cancer or something like that where there's a, a defined course of treatment and that course of treatment is going to conclude at some point. People will stay on specialty drugs for years and years. And so when you've got a specialty drug claimant, they, they are an ongoing financial risk to your plan. Now, these specialty drugs, these are drugs that are typically more than $1,000 a month and have been developed for very specific conditions like Crohn's disease or plaque psoriasis, cystic fibrosis, things like that, MS. They're wonderful drugs. They're life-saving or life-altering for the people who need them, but they can also bankrupt your health plan. Even common, quote-unquote, specialty drugs like Humira or Tremphia cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a month. And it is not uncommon for us to see specialty drugs costing health plans up to two-thirds of all of their pharmacy costs, and it typically only involves a handful of members. And so there are a few measures that you can take to help mitigate that specialty drug risk. The first one is to limit specialty drug fills to 30-day supply. Because if you fill a specialty drug for 90 days, let's say, and the physician decides to move that individual to a different medication or to stop that medication, then you have wasted a lot of money. So limit to 30 days. Have an appropriate amount of cost sharing. If you have flat dollar co-pays, then you are leaving manufacturer money on the table that they offer to members to subsidize their cost sharing. So we typically recommend a percentage copay 
for specialty drugs, something like 25% of the cost of the drug, because almost every single specialty drug out there, you would be hard-pressed to find one that did not have a manufacturer copay assistance program that is readily available to individuals who are taking specialty meds. So if the copay for a specialty drug looks like on paper $1,000, it is not at all uncommon to see that there's a copay card that will take that individual's copay down to something like $25, sometimes to $0. So if you have a flat dollar copay for that medication, then you are leaving all that manufacturer copay assistance on the table. And another thing you can do to mitigate specialty drug risk is to require specialty drugs whenever possible to be filled through the pharmacy plan where you get your best discounts on those drugs. If you allow them to be filled through the medical plan, then there's the possibility that the provider who's administering that medication, if it's an infusion, is going to mark that up, adding additional cost to that medication. And then it's even possible to carve specialty drugs out from your plan entirely. We've had a number of employers take this step. When you do that, it opens up other sources of financing in many cases for that medication so that somebody other than the health plan can be paying for that. So those are just a few ways that you can mitigate specialty drug risk, but it is a very significant concern for most health plans. There are so many laws and regulations that apply to health plans. Is this another area of potential concern? Absolutely. When you sponsor a group health plan, there are a plethora of laws at the federal and if you're a governmental plan at the state level that you need to be aware of and to comply with. And there are often very hefty penalties and fines associated with being non-compliant. So I just wanted to highlight a few areas of federal law that present very particular risk to health plans. And the first of those is the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act is voluminous, and there are many areas of compliance that health plans need to contend with. And there are penalties associated with not fully compliant with the ACA. For example, there are penalties for violating the market reforms of the ACA. So things like that um, age 26 rule, the pro- prohibition against pre-existing condition limitations. There's pretty significant penalties that are assessed if you don't follow all the rules regarding the summary of benefits and coverage, that um, eight-page summary that you're, you're supposed to distribute every year. If you're an applicable large employer, which is an employer with 50 or more full-time employees, then there are penalties for not offering coverage and the right kind of coverage to your full-time employees. And then there are all of these complex reporting obligations that large employers and all self-funded employers have to deal with. And that in and of itself has given rise to an entire industry of companies who will do uh, that reporting for you. And I highly recommend that you have somebody do that for you. A lot of payroll companies will do that. There are also standalone companies who will do it because the reporting is just hideously complex and there are very significant fines associated with not doing it or doing it incorrectly. And then COBRA, COBRA's been with us for a long time. It is a very complex area of federal law. And there's a lot of potential liability involved with COBRA administration. There's an excise tax of $100 per day. You can be sued. We always recommend that employers outsource COBRA administration. 
HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, that statute regulates the portability of health insurance and protects individuals' health information, individual health information. The penalties under HIPAA are ridiculously large for willful violations of HIPAA privacy rules. You can be assessed up to $1.9 million per violation. And then the last area of federal law I wanted to highlight is is mental health parity. So this is a really hot area of compliance right now. The Department of Labor is auditing plans to make sure that they're compliant with mental health parity laws. And they have recently instituted a requirement that plans do a very complex analysis of the non-quantitative treatment limitations within their plan to make sure that those limits aren't any more restrictive for mental health and substance abuse benefits than they are for other benefits, medical and surgical benefits. So those are just a few areas of federal law that are a concern. And I'm not trying to create panic within, um, you know, the employer community, but it is almost impossible for a sponsor of a group health plan to keep up with all these laws and regulations. So the things you can do to mitigate those risks are outsource COBRA administration whenever possible, outsource your ACA reporting. The fees that you're going to pay for that administration and that reporting are negligible compared to the risk of doing it yourself. And then lastly, make sure your third-party administrator and your health insurance consultant have robust compliance capabilities because you really need to be able to rely on them. They need to be a resource for you in keeping you abreast of all the changes within state and federal law and keeping you compliant. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.